Acts chapter 21. Our text was read for us earlier. It's not what's printed there on your notes. That was our foundation from last week. We want to look at this passage and understand something, at least this morning, of facing hardships and suffering, because we all do. And when we do face those hardships, at times it's easy to entertain questions such as, have I done something wrong? Or is God angry with me? Maybe I stepped out of God's will. After all, why would God allow this to happen to me if I'm trying to live for him? Those are the kind of questions that encroach on our faith, and they become unsettling, if not discouraging. And what we need is a confidence that can only come from knowing the character of God and his faithful promises to us. The goal would be, in a sense, to follow the example of the apostle who knew suffering was coming and who had faced a lot of suffering before, but had a a resolute confidence about him to know that God was doing good and was using his life or his death for the glory of Christ and the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. In our text, Paul is arrested. That's not a new experience for him. But this arrest will lead to those multiple hearings that we'll study in these coming chapters. He'll move from imprisonment to imprisonment and eventually will be in a cell that will be his final place. He'll be executed under the Emperor Nero. These are the events that shape the last portion of the book of Acts, but it's a significant portion. When we look at the book of Acts, about a quarter of the book of Acts is Jerusalem, the upper room, Pentecost, healing of the lame man, Temple Mount lectures, arrests and We'll obey God rather than men kind of defenses. The next quarter of the book of Acts has to do more with Judea and Samaria. The evangelist Philip focus on Peter and his work, taking the gospel slowly to the Gentiles. The third quarter of the book gives us the multiple missionary journeys of Paul. And now from chapters 21 to 28, the last entire quarter of the book is a summary of Paul as a prisoner that seems to defy the theme of the book, acts as the advance of the gospel, and yet the last quarter of the book is Paul under confinement, under arrest, prohibited in many ways from this advancing work of the gospel. And so the very outline of the book forces us to consider suffering in the will of God as the kingdom advances. If we're not careful, we just move quickly into the end of the book and Paul's defense to the Jews, Paul's defense to the governors, 
and we forget the big picture is the advance of the gospel, and yet that is happening even through suffering, hardship, persecution, opposition, and even death. The gospel advance cannot be stopped by silencing a voice. I want us to grapple with this theme this morning. We must accept suffering as God's will. We must accept suffering as God's will. Now, here's how I want us to study this this morning. First, we need to see how our story unfolds in the text. Because it's really giving us the final details that we began last week of Paul coming to Jerusalem and facing hardship and even suffering. The Spirit had warned him about it, and now it's unfolding in our story. There's a few questions that will arise. We want to at least touch on those. And then, with the notes in your bulletin, we want to make sure and make application to our thinking and our living in the face of suffering. So let's work through this story. It may not be one that's familiar to us. There are certainly more familiar stories in the book of Acts than this one. Paul has come back to Jerusalem at the end of his third and final missionary journey. He's given a report there to the elders, the leaders of the church. And then the leaders raise a concern to Paul. The Jews in Jerusalem are concerned that Paul has been undermining their Jewish ways, their customs. And so the leaders make a recommendation. They suggest that Paul participate in this ritual purification along with these four other men that are listed there this vow that they've committed to. Paul should join them in this custom and go through this purification process in the coming days. It would be this gesture of Paul to show those believing Jews that he's not anti-Jew, anti-Moses, anti-custom, or anti-temple. When we read the story, we are right to ask the question first, what was this ritual purification? The language comes to us in just snippets. We hear of a custom. We hear of a vow. We hear of purifying themselves. There are expenses to be paid. Yet it's tied to an observance of the law. At least it would show the Jews something of that spirit. And then we get to verse 26. There's days of purification, an offering to be presented. It raises questions. What exactly is this? The answer is, I'm not sure. <laughs> Maybe your answer is better than that. I would, I would generally summarize the collective voice of the church in saying, that doesn't give us enough information to just immediately turn to an Old Testament text and say, here it is. Although we generally lean on Numbers chapter 6 and the idea of the Nazarite vow. We might remember that from the story of Samson or perhaps other mentions. And there's a lot to it that unfolds in Numbers chapter 6, but what, what is interesting is 
what's in Numbers chapter 6 isn't as much as what is mentioned here in Acts. We can't draw straight lines and say, oh, that's what it is. If this were a Nazarite vow, then we might have concerns if indeed any animals were being sacrificed for some kind of ritual cleansing. Because Paul has been this great advocate for the centrality of the gospel. Jewishness and customs are okay if they don't infringe on the gospel. A Nazarite vow may include an animal sacrifice for cleansing that would seem to contradict Paul's strong stand that Christ has been our sacrifice once for all. All pictures of sacrifices for cleansing are summarized in Christ. We shouldn't need to go back to the picture when we have the reality. But to alleviate our tension there, thinking, well, if this was a Nazarite vow, were they making an animal sacrifice? We have to remind ourselves that Luke does not use any clear language to identify a Nazarite vow. And remember this, Paul is an Old Testament scholar, a genius, if you would, trained by the best teachers. He knew what the Nazarite vow was and would have been able to articulate if that indeed was what he was doing. Luke as well is no slouch. He is a careful writer. He's made that clear in his introduction to the books that he's documenting clearly this process of the advance of the church for his listener. He would use proper language. He would use specific language if he could or needed to. So at best, we can surmise that this was a custom that in some way may have been derived from specific Old Testament practices or principles. As we did last week, we would ask again this question. Was Paul wrong to get into the weeds of all these customs to kind of accommodate the concerns of these Jewish Christians in Jerusalem? Well, in answering that question, we should remember that Paul is not rabidly anti-custom. Paul, in his apostleship, I think led by the Holy Spirit, had a, had a good understanding of this unique transition of taking a people who believed in Jehovah, the God of Israel, and yet Jehovah had made his son known, and now everything was changing. For us, it's kind of a study in the story of the Bible. Oh, the Old Testament was pictures, and it pointed to Jesus, but Jesus came, and now it's all real clear. But they lived for decades and decades of a transition from all the old Jewish ways that were meaningful and important. They were God's plan to help show the fullness of Christ who would come. And yet those things were, were gradually falling away in these years of the advance of the gospel as we're studying in the book of Acts. We're now some 30 years beyond the life of Christ on earth. And yet Jewish customs are still prevalent, especially in Jerusalem. They're still worshiping at the Temple Mount. 
making sacrifices, having rejected the sacrifice of Christ. What we need to remember is that Paul is not anti-custom. He's not insisting that Jews put away everything from their Jewish past. You would remember back in chapter 16, he even has Timothy circumcised to facilitate Timothy's testimony of the gospel among the Jews. He didn't want Timothy to be rejected and his message not heard, and so he accommodates the Jews by having Timothy circumcised. Though he had already made a strong defense to the church leaders in Acts 15 that Gentiles do not need to be circumcised to be saved. So Timothy's circumcision was simply an accommodation, a means by which he could better have a voice to speak to that crowd. In chapter 18 of Acts, Paul himself takes some kind of vow with similar language to what's here in chapter 21, though even there we're not told exactly what it was. Chapter 20, he marks the Feast of Unleavened Bread and references the Feast of Pentecost. So Paul is still keenly aware of the Jewish world and is not afraid of Jewish customs and is not afraid of believing Christians still having some Jewish customs. However, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he makes his philosophy clear about where he stands regarding these customs. Verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 9, Paul writes, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. He's just talked about his right to travel and preach the gospel, and he says, I'm not, I'm not bound by whatever anyone else thinks. I'm free, and yet I make myself a servant to every group of people I come to. I I feel this compulsion to, to do whatever I need to, to have a voice with them. He continues, To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. We looked at that when we studied Timothy's circumcision. Was it for some kind of saving benefit? No. It was simply to fit in with the Jews, to eliminate that distraction, that obstacle to the message of the gospel. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law. The Jews felt constrained by all the law of Moses still. So when Paul comes among Jews, he's going to observe the Sabbath. He's going to observe the feasts. He's going to observe the ritual customs of purification. If it doesn't compromise the gospel, he will become as one who is still under the law, parenthetical, though he admits, I'm not under that law. That I might win those under the law, he says. My goal is to winsomely present the gospel. And I'll eliminate any hurdle to that that's cultural or customary. Verse 21, he says, to those who are outside the law. This is the Gentile crowd. I became as one outside the law 
not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. He's saying, I'm not living recklessly and sinfully without any governing authority, but I'm seeing now the law fulfilled in Christ, so I'm under Christ's lordship. Same righteousness unfolds in the law of Moses as does in Christ. The righteousness of God hasn't changed. Paul is simply saying, I'm looking to Christ. I don't feel constrained by Moses. And so when I'm with those who don't know the Mosaic law, the Gentiles, I'm not teaching them that they need to become Jewish Christians. I'm teaching them they need to become Christians. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I think that applies to Acts 21. These believing Jews who were still in turmoil between hanging on to customs because they thought they were important. They were in the law of Moses. But that's a weakness. That's an immaturity that hasn't fully come to the fullness of Christ. And so Paul says, to the weak, I will become weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that I by all means might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Pretty clear statement of philosophy. And certainly when we take that with all of Paul's dogma in all of his letters, we realize all things to all men doesn't mean I'll sinfully engage in anything to be able to reach sinners. He's simply saying, if it's non-essential, then that's not my focus or my concern. If somebody doesn't like it that I fellowship with the Gentiles, then they're going to have to deal with that themselves. And if the Gentiles don't like it that I practice Jewish customs when I'm with the Jews, then they need to grow up a little too. But I will become all things to all men so that I can keep preaching the gospel. So Paul is not anti-custom in our text. He gives us his philosophy there in 1 Corinthians. He is fenced in by the gospel. There is a boundary, but inside that fence, there is freedom to roam and to do whatever is necessary to accommodate these different crowds of people. Most importantly, we should note that Paul is ferociously defensive of the gospel of grace. I don't think we need to have an alarm bell going off in our heads that Paul in this text compromised the gospel and somehow is giving credence to either animal sacrifices or some keeping of the law for salvation. Tucked right away in this text is a rehearsing of the council's letter that was sent out from the church in chapter 15, that language of, The Gentiles don't need to become Jews. Now, they need to not become like the world. They need to separate from ungodliness, but they don't have to follow the law and be circumcised. Paul is defensive of the gospel of grace. He has insisted that Gentiles do not need to become Jewish to be saved. They don't need to be circumcised to be in the family of God. It's not a genetic descent any longer. It's a faith descent. Paul has already written the letters of Romans, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, with his firm language about the gospel. So I don't think we should think in this moment he caved 
to Jewish influence. When just a few chapters before, Acts 15, he gave his report and said, this is what God's doing to the Gentiles. He stood up to Peter in the face of all the other Jewish friends and said, you're wrong to disassociate with Gentiles because the Jews don't like it. So I think we're inconsistent if we, if we read this text and think somehow Paul suddenly caved to the pressure and compromised. If anything, when you're reading books like Galatians, you wonder if Paul was pushing the limits of the harshness of his message. Read what he says about the Jews who think others should be circumcised, and you'd think, Paul, just tone it down a little. We're in church. I don't think Paul compromised here. When we consider Paul's regular defense of the gospel. And perhaps most helpful, Scripture never condemns Paul for any gospel compromise. Though those condemnations are found elsewhere in Scripture of those who did compromise the gospel. The Bible isn't protecting Paul, covering up some slip by not having anyone address it, I think we can just recognize that in this text, Paul is becoming all things to all men so that he might preach the gospel. His great burden in coming to Jerusalem is to take the Gentile church and the Jewish church and unite them as Christ's church. So he wants a hearing with these Jews. And he's willing to take these steps of accommodation so that he can have that hearing striving for the unity of the church. Paul was under no obligation to do this ritual cleansing. Nothing in our New Testament tells us that this is what we should be doing on a regular basis. Instead, we should be reminding ourselves of the sufficiency of Christ, confessing our sin on a regular basis, not just Sunday in the order of the worship service, but daily confessing our sin. That's the purification we need. So while under no obligation, he engages in this Jewish custom to demonstrate unity in the church. This is a concession of conscience, not a compromise of the gospel. Well, it's to no avail. This great idea, recommendation of the church leaders, hey, Paul, why don't you throw him a bone? Why don't you do this to accommodate the Jews? Well, actually, it, it may have worked for the Jerusalem Jews, but our text tells us there's another crowd. And they are the Jews from Asia, verse 27 says. Apparently, they recognized Paul from his travels in Asia, perhaps in Ephesus and some of the other places where the riots broke out because of Paul's teaching. These are radical Jews perhaps giving lip service to some kind of faith in Christ, but they seem to be a different crowd than the ones in verse 20, the Jews who have believed, who were still zealous for the law. There's the immature Christian Jew who's struggling to figure out what it means to be a follower of Jesus and how that relates to his upbringing under the law of Moses. These Jews in verse 27 are probably unbelieving Jews. The kind, of, the kind of staunch Judaism that cried out for the crucifixion of Jesus, and they're similarly calling out to do away with Paul. 
As we move through these final chapters, we start seeing more and more similarity in the the trial and the execution of Jesus and these final days of Paul, the apostle. A riot breaks out. The Romans get involved and quickly make peace. But this begins Paul's final journey of defense, of imprisonment, travel to Rome, and eventual death. So what do we learn from this story of a man who's trying hard to serve the Lord faithfully, who is seeking to follow the Spirit's leading, who loves the church, and who, for all his sacrificial effort, suffers greatly. Well, remember our theme. We must accept suffering as God's will. Why do we even need to teach on this? I think it's because there are two powerful influences that keep us from at times from accepting the reality that suffering may be the will of God. In a very positive influence, there is the reality of Genesis 1, that God created everything and it was very good. No brokenness, no sin, no death. And now, Romans 8 tells us in this world, especially having the the deposit, the down payment of our redemption, we've tasted that divine nature. We know something of restoration, but we're groaning in this life, waiting for the fullness of that redemption. When everything is made right, when everything once again is very good. So on the positive side, we know suffering and brokenness and the effects of sin, they they are not good in and of themselves. Death is an enemy. Sin and its consequence is not celebrated, it's, it's groaned. That's on the positive side. There there is a right reason for why we tend to not accept suffering as the will of God. Because we have just kind of stereotypically put suffering as, that's bad, It's, it's not good. And that's kind of true. But if we're not careful, that will keep us from recognizing the groaning duration in this life. The negative side of not accepting suffering is what we might label broadly as the prosperity gospel. And it's championed in that question, why do bad things happen to good people? And the reality of groaning in a sin-cursed world is the question of why wouldn't they? What makes you think from the scriptures that good people wouldn't suffer bad things. And so this theme of accepting suffering as God's will, it seems simple, 
But I think when it trickles down into real life, when you stand at bedsides and gravesides, the questions start to shape in your mind. Why? Why did God allow this suffering? And I want us to even get beyond his allowance of suffering and recognize suffering as God's will. So to affirm this statement, let's recognize first that doing God's will includes suffering. We're starting on a slightly more manageable thought that the will of God includes suffering. That's the story of Paul's ministry. We looked at it last time. From his conversion, he was marked, he was destined to show a life of suffering. All through his ministry, he suffered. 1 Corinthians 11 lists all the hardships he endured. 1 Corinthians 12 says Paul made his case to God himself to take away some of his suffering. And he asked again and again and again, and God said no. But I'll give you grace that will suffice. It will carry you through the suffering. You'll be strong even though you feel weak. The story of Paul's ministry is that doing God's will includes suffering. You can't read his story without seeing that. You can't read the testimony of the church. And, and, and just to bring it right down the home, just look back over your Christian life. Has it been problem-free? No. Doing God's will includes stuff, suffering. That's the story of Paul's ministry, but it's also the truth of Bible teaching. In Ephesians 1.11, God is described as the one who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. So God works all things based on the schematic that has already been designed in his mind. He works everything to the plan. So doing God's will includes suffering. It was the prophet Isaiah that reminded us that from the beginning of any situation or of the beginning of the world, God knows the end. Well, we think, well, that's impressive. He's, he must be omniscient. He can even know the end from back at the beginning. Some of you might care if the Chiefs win their football game, right? And you could turn it on and watch them kick that ball off and start the whole thing going, but you don't know the end. You can't know that. And we're impressed that God could know the end from the beginning, but that's just the first premise of Isaiah's point. He goes on to say he knows the end from the beginning because it's all his counsel and will. It's not just the knowing, it's the doing. God knows how it will end because he is going to have his will all the way to the end. Doing God's will includes suffering. That's the truth of Bible teaching. Third, that's the example we see in the stormy seas of the Gospels. In Mark chapter 6, 
Jesus has just fed thousands of people with a small lunch. And the text says this, Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. He goes up into the mountain to pray, and the storm almost drowns his disciples. And we want to get to the good part, Jesus walking on the water and all that, and they safely to the other side. And sometimes we forget that Jesus, said, the text says, constrained them to get into a boat that was going to carry them into a storm. But that storm was designed to show those men who had fledgling faith who Jesus was, what he was capable of. It was on purpose that they suffered. God's purpose. He sent them into the storm that they they might know him. Doing God's will includes suffering. That's the story of Paul's ministry. It's the truth of Bible teaching. It's the example we see of the storms in the Gospels. And it's the reason for God's promise to us in Romans 8 that all things work together for good to those who are the called according to the purpose of God. God made that promise because he knew he was going to constrain you to get into a boat. He knew he was going to constrain you to sail through the stormy seas of miscarriage, of divorce, of broken relationships, of family turning away from you because you you live for Jesus, of cancer and all the other diseases. He knew he would constrain you, lead you down a path of suffering at times. And so he gave this promise that though your eye only can see the bad and interpret it as such, in the infinite mind of God, he can lead you into the bad of life, the groaning, and work it all for good. That's his promise. Because he knew his plan for you would include suffering. So doing God's will includes suffering. And we say that because at times we look at someone else's life and we see the suffering. And we might look at our own life and think it's not really that bad by comparison. We might not think we're suffering all that much at times. And that's true because of what we're saying here. God's will includes suffering. It doesn't mean it's a whole life of suffering, though for some, It is. For you, it may not be. But start there. Doing God's will includes suffering. Because then we move to a further understanding. God uses suffering to accomplish his will. In the infinite mind of God, he chooses suffering to accomplish what is good and right for his glory and the good of his people. God uses suffering to accomplish his will. We see this in our text. Paul is arrested, and God accomplishes the advance of the gospel. 
So chained, imprisoned, confined equals gospel success, expansion. We saw that last week in Philippians chapter 1. Paul's chains, he says, very poetically, have led to the furtherance of the gospel. How does chaining lead to expansion and freedom? But Paul said that's how God works. He uses the hardship and suffering for good. But there's a more convincing argument for this truth that God uses suffering to accomplish his will. And it's not just the advance of the gospel, it's the very gospel itself. How are you saved? Well, we look at our salvation, we see it wrapped up in the whole will and heart of God. How did God accomplish his will for your salvation? Isaiah the prophet predicted in chapter 53 that our salvation would come by the suffering of another. By his stripes, we would be healed. The punishment for our sin was laid on him. And we are declared righteous. Peter would echo this language in chapter 2. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Conclusion, by his wounds, his suffering, his death, we have been healed. As rebellious sinners, we deserved the righteous wrath of a holy God. The gospel, this good news, is that Jesus took our place and we would say, suffered the wrath of God for us. It wasn't for his sin. Those were our stripes and they were laid on him. He was punished for our sin. But God accomplished his will in saving sinners through the suffering of his son. As much as we are right to say suffering is bad and hardship is bad and brokenness is bad, we must recognize that God uses suffering to accomplish his will. Now notice one word in that theme sentence, and it's that word, accept. We must accept suffering in the will of God. Let's see what this means. Number three, we must trust God's perfect plan to use our suffering. This, this is where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. We've kind of been talking, in a sense, theological positions. Uh, God, God's will includes suffering. God may use suffering to accomplish his will more pointedly. If that's true, what does that mean for us this week? Or in this season of life, it means we must trust that God has a perfect plan. So we're already in faith. He has a plan. It's a good one. It's a perfect plan. And that plan includes my suffering. We have to be done with the faulty thinking. So stop thinking that suffering means you did something wrong. 
that it automatically means God did something wrong or that God doesn't love you as much as he loves someone else because they're not suffering. Stop thinking suffering means you are out of God's will. There is, a, there is teaching in the scriptures that God's chastening hand, his love will steer us back to the right path. You might with a firm hand remind your child not to cross the road as a toddler. And you might give a certain reinforcement to make sure they know that that's a bad idea. Stay over here. Well, that's the loving father in Hebrews who steers us back to the right path. We know that's true. But the devil can twist that at times into God's this mean ogre with a big stick ready to hit us as soon as we misstep. And something bad happened today because I haven't been reading my Bible much lately. Those are the thoughts you may have entertained But be done with faulty thinking and come to the scriptures and find out what God really does say about suffering. And what you'll find are sweet words that David gave us in Psalm 18. As for God, his way is perfect. Now that's a statement of faith in a lot of times. You know, when when your child is born and you're there in the hospital, it's pretty easy to just see, oh, God's way is perfect. But when that child is at St. Jude's Hospital with cancer at 9 or 10 years old, you're skating on thin ice of understanding God's ways. And suddenly it's faith. Will I trust that God's way is perfect? That's the task set before us today when we encounter the suffering of Paul in doing the will of God. We'll leave here resolved to live the Christian life, advance the gospel of the kingdom, and then we might run into suffering and hardship. And we must trust God's perfect plan to use our suffering. We must cling to Romans 8, God's promise to work our suffering for good, We must have the passionate desire that Paul had in Philippians 3 that I might know Christ in the fellowship of his suffering. We know Christ suffered and we want the benefit of that in the gospel, but do we want to be Christ-like in suffering to accomplish the will of God? That I may know him, Paul says. That's why the disciples were constrained to get in the boat so that they would know Jesus in a deeper and fuller way as God. Could it be that we might even experience that which Peter twice described in his first letter, rejoicing, rejoicing in suffering because God is doing something with our suffering. Peter writes, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. He would later say, Beloved, do not be surprised at fiery trials when they come upon you to test you as though some strange thing were happening to you, but rejoice 
insomuch as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Yes, we must trust God's perfect plan to use our suffering, but let me point you to the fullness of our hope. And that is number four, that we trust God's faithful promise to end our suffering. Our faith is now that God will use our suffering and work it for good. The fullness of that faith. When Christ returns and his church is gathered around the throne, we trust God's faithful promise to end our suffering as Revelation 20 and following make clear. You see, there's an argument that is popular in even Christian circles. It may tend to have its roots in more charismatic understandings of God's will. And they will say things like, it's not God's will for us to be sick. When Carrie was in the hospital with the infection. Uh, Some acquaintances, kind of outside maybe our camp of understanding Scripture, made it clear that that was not God's will for that infection to be in her body. And I would joke with Carrie about the language that I've heard from more charismatic folks, I do not receive that. So I told Carrie she should not receive. MRSA, um, it's wreaking havoc, so be done with that. It's just not that simple. Uh, Those folks are, are right to, in a sense, say it's not God's will. Genesis 1 and Revelation. But in between, we're kind of stuck because sin has launched this massive assault against God's good design and plan. And we're left groaning with its consequence until God puts an end to sin and suffering. But accepting that suffering is God's will now does not compromise our faith that suffering will not be God's will then. Hallelujah. So he will be able to wipe every tear from our eye and everything old and broken will be made new. And he will again say it's very good. And we will say indeed it is. This is the fullness of joy in the presence of God. But until then, we trust that God will use our suffering now. But that same faith has a fuller understanding that then he not only uses our suffering, but he puts an end to it. So we groan presently. But this we know. God will make all things new. And so I don't have to pick a real big fight with the folks that were saying, this isn't God's will and he doesn't want this. And I wanted to argue with them like, well, then sin's winning. Like God's smaller than MRSA. I don't want that. Why not instead yield our will and our understanding to the perfect plan of God who says, I will use that suffering and I know you hate it. I'll put an end to it. 
That's the big picture of our faithful and loving God. We must accept suffering as God's will. And when our understanding of his purpose and plan has been exhausted, then we rest in faith that God uses our suffering to accomplish his good plan. And he points to the gospel again and again to make his point. Suffering is used by God for our good. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. For the life of Paul, the disciples, so many other believers who demonstrate for us that we must live by faith. As we consider the great men and women of faith that are recorded in Hebrews 11, we realize that faith is often matched with trial and hardship and suffering. So do a work in our minds that would free us from mistruth or half-truth and arm us with that which is your truth about suffering and about your will, about your sovereign rule over all brokenness and sin. And may our study today fire the hope in us and purify it that truly you will come again and make all things new. Thank you for this text, which gives us the ability and the understanding to say, come quickly, Lord. But until you come, you have equipped us by your word and by your sufficient grace to endure suffering, even rejoicing in it, because you are so good and so faithful and your plan is so right. But our eyes are dull. And at times we're weary, so be merciful to us to show us what we need to carry us along as a loving father to put us on your shoulders, bear us up when we just can't go on, We want to be strong. We want strong faith. We want to be able to stare suffering in the eye and shout it down with truth. And yet, often we're bullied and beat up. So we commit ourselves to you, to the faithful care of a good shepherd who will lead us all the way home. And for this, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.